Welcome back, everyone, to a brand new episode of Virtual Coffee. My name is Alexa Collier, and on this podcast, I interview accomplished and innovative early career professionals and small business owners. My goal is to showcase those early on in their careers and give them a platform to share their journeys and advice to others, as well as sit and chat with those who may be later on in their careers and hear the advice they have for those earlier on in their careers. Now, with me today is Wilf Nelson. Wilf graduated from the University of Birmingham in 2015 with a bachelor's degree in psychology, and he obtained his master's in neuroscience in 2017. Wolf has experience as a behavioral expert at various companies, and in 2018, Wolf became the owner of Mythos Media Productions, a podcast company which produces his own podcast, Water Cooler Neuroscience. Wolf is also currently pursuing his PhD at the University of Birmingham. Now, as always, before we dive into Wilf's journey, I'd appreciate it if you could rate and review the podcast on the Apple Podcast app. You can also listen to Virtual Coffee on Podbean and Spotify, and you can find our social medias on Facebook and Instagram. It's at Virtual Coffee Podcast. We appreciate your support and happy listening. Now, let's hear from Wilf. Welcome, Wilf. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. Yeah, you're welcome. It's cool to have a chat. Yeah, definitely. I'm I'm ready to dive in here. I'd love to first discuss your academic career and would love if you could take us through your journey from undergraduate school to graduate school to now I know you're pursuing your PhD. And I'm curious what really drove your decisions to obtain your degrees in psychology and neuroscience, as well as to continue school after obtaining your bachelor's. I actually first was going to be a lawyer. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah, and I was um, at Birmingham University in the UK, which is how the English pronounce Birmingham, if anybody's curious. And I just didn't like the law. Um, I've talked about this elsewhere, so I won't repeat myself too much, but I quit. I only managed about a term and a bit. I just knew I didn't like it. I actually went home for Christmas, and then when I came back, I just did not want to be back doing the law. I wanted to continue being academic and studying and stuff. So the psychology building and the law building at my university are next to each other. And I got the wrong office to hand in my forms to leave. And then I met Dr. John Catling, who realized that I was a student who was trying to quit a course and asked me if I wanted to be a psychologist. Actually, it was the other choice. So when I was doing my pre-university education, um, psychology was the other thing I was very interested in. So I then did um, psychology. The reason I actually would like psychology was I actually find people really hard to understand. And that's because I'm autistic. And what's counted as high functioning autistic, but I still am. And those around me have, after the many years, realized I see the world in very different ways. I find some things about people very challenging. I find some parts of how people logically think not very clear. Psychology offered me a way to understand that as a system. People do follow rules. Uh, it's very complex rules and it's very counterintuitive rules but they do follow rules so I got to learn how to understand people and be able to move around the world in a way that was a lot more easy for me to understand by learning it as a science because when people talk if you don't know anybody's autistic or you haven't spoken to anybody's autistic you might not realize the way it works effectively is it's like people are speaking a language that you don't speak and in fact it's even more than that it's almost like people are telepathic that they're having a sub-conversation that you're not part of. So 
people can be talking about two things and then you'll interject and you'll have totally not understood the way the conversation's going or you'll say something that was seen to be incredibly rude and you're, what you said was entirely true and it wasn't mentioned in a mean-spirited way but people can take it in incredibly personal and offended ways um, over the course of like the last 10 years I've had to apologize and almost been kicked off places and courses and stuff because I've just said something I didn't mean I didn't realize was horrifically offensive and it's not like I said anything about race or about um, sexuality or stuff like that I just said something that personally t offended that person in their selves and some people can be quite precious and other people can be rightly justified that what I said was not very pleasant um, but logically correct each time so it took a long time for me to learn how to control and temper that. And psychology offered me a way to understand that. So I did my course. Um, I did a couple of other things on my course, like I wrote books. I've always liked the arts. I'm not just a scientist. I also did business. Um, Birmingham has some really great entrepreneurial and innovation support. And I got to be part of that. So I got to learn quite a bit about that. And I also ran an art society for a couple of years, which was cool. Yeah, so um, I got to do paintings and drawings and stuff um left that a bit behind at the moment um so i did all that and then i finished and i couldn't find what i wanted to do with myself so wanting to be a psychologist and there not being many pure psychology jobs around particularly um in the uk you are when you finish your you when you finish your undergrad i don't know how it is in the us or in other countries um that we are heard in when you finish you're not massively qualified to do a huge amount of psychological activities that might sound crazy, but if you think about you want to work in an office, well, occupational psychology requires you to do a master's in occupational psychology. If you want to work in clinical, which is enormously popular, but I never felt the pull to that, you're going to have to do a clinical master's, time in a lab, time in a ward, and you're going to have to do a clinical doctorate. There's a lot there. If you want to like do a brain imaging or whatever, like I did, you have to go do a master's in neuroscience and learn about imaging technology. So I actually spent a year as a um, business consultant that's different uh, business psychologist um, informs how your business can be um, in sales and the structure can be improved by psychology an occupational psychologist is more there on the hr side to make sure that everybody is functioning and able to cope with the stress of the business i didn't do that i helped uh, more on the strategy and discussion level did that for a bit but i found it again the problem was the fact that it's a very talky not even talky emotional intelligence heavy business like world was very challenging for an autistic and i could do it but it's exhausting and you can piss off clients or clients can try to get very annoyed at you um i've had that where i tried to explain some stuff and people just didn't want to hear it uh, very famously there's a psychology test called the myers-briggs test it has been almost entirely disproven that it doesn't do anything it's not a real it doesn't play on real personality traits it doesn't work really do the same thing you can take the test one week and take the test another week and your personality will, according to the test, be different. But we know personality doesn't change that fast. I'm not going to go into all the reasons it doesn't work because it's a whole podcast to just talk about that. But you try and explain these things. Um, and this is the exact kind of thing you try and explain and help. And you get told to leave. And not so politely told to leave. Because you had upset them that they thought they'd been really clever on understanding psychology. And you try and point out that well, you actually need something like the Big Five test, which is a very complex test. And you need a psychologist to understand it for you. But it's got a lot more evidence behind it. It holds up a lot better. All the McCoster and Cray tests um, hold up a lot better when you actually put them for experimentation. So if you're trying to decide who you want to employ, use the Big Five, use the McCoster and Cray. Don't use the Myers-Briggs. Even though the Myers-Briggs is easier to use, it's easier to use but gives you nothing of value um, from a scientific point of view. So after a year of doing that, I got very really tired. So I thought, okay, well, I'm not qualified 
to do anything psychologically in the way I want to do, I get better go back to school then. I better accept my limitations. And I got on, then the UK opened up what was the uh, master's loans that you could take. They're um, paid back based on your earnings. So they're very gentle loans. And it's not like um, you take a £10,000 loan out and you have to start paying it back the month after you take it, which is really hard to do when you're studying. It's a really gentle loan. Did my master's and I actually got to meet the person who would be my supervisor. Stephen Mayhew, and I've um, had a chat with him on the show. I won't speak too much about what he does. I'll let him speak for himself because Steve is, one, an incredibly nice man, an amazing intellect. Over the years of me knowing him, just the amount that he understands and knows unfolds. It's like opening up a Pandora's box that opens up another one that opens up another one. And you just realize how much knowledge he has to give you. But he's a physicist. So to him, the brain is a signal generator. It creates signals, you measure it, you look at the different ways it creates, you can turn bits on and off. And I'm a psychologist. So the brain is, for me, the seat of consciousness. It provides our entire lives, and I'm most interested in certain parts of it. So how we view the brain is quite different, and that's been a very exciting part of my PhD to be able to see where he's led me and where I've been able to rebut and put forward different arguments. But I will let him talk about his own research in his own physicist way. So I did my master's. Um, I got introduced. To, I got introduced to physics because um, nearly all the machines that neuroscientists use are physics machines. We are uh, neuroscientists and psychologists didn't make them, so you have to understand the physics. You have to understand what a machine is. The machine's actually doing when you go in a tube, like you see an fMRI on um, the TV. Um, if, if you ever want to tell when you see one of these big tube machines, if it's an fMRI or a CAT scan. A CAT scan will not kill you if you have metal on you. An fMRI will pull the metal towards you so fast that it will hurt you. fMRIs are incredibly dangerous machines. If you're ever around one, follow all instructions given, please. Really, please. So I had to learn everything about the fMRI, to learn its safety. I got to learn about EEG. That's that shower cap thing you see where they, and you learn about all its limitations. And then there's actually a new one you don't really see on the TV much called magnetoencephalography bit of high school physics for anybody who wants to remember all magnetic signals have a mag sorry all electrical signals have a magnetic component that's why it's called electromagnetism our brain generates electrical signals so it must logically generate magnetic signals our skull can stop electrical signals because it's a big piece of bone our skull can't stop magnetic signals so we get really clean data from a magnetoencephalography that's a meta magnetoencephalography Hard to say. And um, if anybody's curious, episodes... So season two has episodes on that, but I won't go into more detail. So I did all of that and I learned all of this physics and all of the um, chemistry. I had to learn tons of maths because we can get the machines out, but um, physics is best represented with mathematics. So you have to learn the mathematics. And then when you have the maths, there is a lot of noise. So you have to learn statistics because statistics is really capable of handling noise in um, anything. So... Statistics help. Um, I had to learn all the statistics, and then I had to learn coding because once you have the machines, the machines don't understand what they're seeing, even if you understand the numbers. So then you have to code the machine to te um, teach it. So you're kind of getting an idea of what my masters was like. It was a lot of work. It was a lot of work. I was tired by the end. Then I and I actually went oh, sometime in November after I've been working with Steve, and I actually I remember very clearly. I apologised as I said I'm about to have a very autistic conversation, which he knows means that I'm about to say some stuff I'm going to get in trouble for. And I said, I'd like to do a PhD. I want to work in this lab and I want to be able to be able to pick some of the subjects I do. And he said yes, which was very nice of him. So skipping ahead, uh, when you do a PhD in the UK, you do it in three years. In um, K 
Canada, you do it in about seven. And in America, you do it anywhere between five to ten years, depending on... I've, I've heard... I've had chats with people who've done it on dose. I don't actually know what the standardised for America is. So if anybody wants to chime in and correct me on the internet, feel free, internet, come after me and tell me. So the UK PhD system is enormously fast. It would be like trying to do an undergraduate degree in a year, which is a lot of work. <laughs> And it really is that. That is actually an entirely fair comparison. It's a lot, a lot of stuff to get done. So normally what you do is a lot of reading. I did do a lot of reading, but my topic carried over. So I was doing the same stuff. And what I do in the lab uh, to kind of segue into that is you might have heard the myth that you only use 10% of your brain. It is a myth. There is actually an origin to the myth if anybody's curious. Your brain is not just neurons. It actually um, requires an enormous life support system. They're called glial cells and microglial cells. And that means glue in Greek. Um, but effectively, they're both support cells and they um, provide structure. And then you've got these big fluid sacs in your brain, which um, are called the ventricles, and they also help support your brain. Um, if they decrease, the brain kind of collapses on itself because it can't support itself um, without the liquid. And then there's this whole soupy, like electrolytes almost. And people remember that from like uh, Powerade and um, Lucozade um, here in the UK and stuff. It's actually kind of similar. It's a very sugar-filled, oxygen-filled sodium, potassium, um, calcium, which are all these normal electrolytes you get in sports drinks, and they're in your brain. Now, why your brain needs that is not a topic for this podcast. If anybody's curious, this is literally the first chapter of any discussion of any biology on the brain. Have a look or get in touch with me. But you use all your brain all the time. But only 10% of your brain is actually neurons. 90% of it is this life support cell life support system so when we say when uh, the first ones came out saying you use 10 percent of your brain it's more that you use 10 percent. but if you added more neurons and took away the life support the cells can't survive so there's only really ever that amount but when you are using all your brain and it is like a hundred billion neurons or something you don't actually want to use all of them all at once that would be a seizure it's too much information and if you think about what's going on right now um, our listeners are listening to a podcast so your ears are enormously important yeah are your legs as important for the task? So for this task, your legs aren't that important, but your ears are. So what your brain does is it actually reduces some of the activity in your motor centers, in your feeling or somatosensory centers, and puts more power to your hearing. So you're not getting interference because you don't need to know how your socks feel. Now I've mentioned it, you will know how your socks feel, but you didn't need to. So that was irrelevant information. And your brain tries to save resources to focus on what you want to focus on. So that was what my PhD is on. We look at how the brain handles this balance. Pass that on at what I actually do in my PhD. So that's the main theory and it exists in EEG. There's a formalized set of papers. It's called the alpha inhibition hypothesis because it occurs in this range of nine to 13 times a second where your brain is firing. And if you've got neurons that are firing nine to 13 times a second, they will likely be firing this inhibitory, this control signal to turn areas off, make them behave. So the other areas that are more important for the task, whatever that task is, they can do their job without interference. In fMRI, it's less formalized. There isn't, um, in, we know it exists. There are discussions and papers, but it doesn't have a formal paper. There's not a formal theory with one clear name. So the first experiments we did, we actually looked at, well, all the experiments all basically followed the same principle. So I'll describe it for everybody. We put you in a room and we're going to present you something on a screen and we're going to give you a cue um, and not a line or something like that. We're going to give you a cue that tells you something's going to come up. So I'm going to cue you to do something. The reason is the brain's a bit sluggish. 
So it takes about half a second to one second to really get into the exact brain state that we want to measure. So if I show you something, that means we aren't really going to get one to half a second of data that we want. So what we do is we give you a warning that in one second, something's going to pop up on the stream and it's going to be visual. Dead easy. But that gives your brain time to catch up. And then when we start recording the data, we get really clean, nice brain signals because we got that lag out of the way. The other thing is that we're only really ever presenting in one modality or one sense. So we present visually or we present in your auditory or we can actually um, stimulate the skin and we can make you feel like uh, pins and needles. It's completely safe. I've had it done to me hundreds of times, but you can feel it tingle. And they each cause different activations in very different areas of the brain that mean we can separate them really easily. There's a couple of problems there and we started to probe at them. First off is you almost never do anything that doesn't require more than one sense being active at once. And normally information is coming at you from more than one sense at once. So what the first experiments we did was we looked at both EEG and fMRI separately to understand if we gave you more than one sense at one time, how does your brain handle regulating unneeded areas? How does it handle sending um, blood flow? How does it handle sending neural signals to keep everything as efficient as possible? And that was quite interesting. We did it over two different um, imaging techniques because we wanted to see what the differences were. It's really complicated to explain in a less than a minute how EEG and fMRI work, but they work on different signals. They're not actually looking at the same thing. So by doing the two different tests, we could look at different things. Then um, I propose an experiment, which is we give you this cue signal telling you what's going to happen a second ahead of time, but you never get that in the real world. And there's lots of evidence that there is all this alpha signal when we give you a preparation ahead of time. But what if we don't give you a preparation ahead of time? What if, or what if we give you a preparation, but it's false? What if we lie to you? And we lie in a nice way. We're literally just telling you something's going to appear visually and in reality it appears in your ears. So we're not being mean. We're not tricking anybody, really. But we are presenting false information, stuff that you have to react to rather than just be given the information. So we made that experiment and we're currently still designing. That's why I can't talk about what we found there because I don't know. And then the final one we did was you almost never actually just use your senses for nothing. The stuff we provide in an experiment will be some checkerboards on a screen because it's really good at stimulating the brain or we'll provide you some beeps in your ears because it's really good at stimulating the brain. But right now you're using your auditory system. Hello, dear listener. And it's got information with it. I'm providing you with language. If you don't speak English, this is going to come across as a very difficult podcast to understand because I speak quickly and I know I do. If I was to keep talking about the relationship between different variables and different parts of your brain, that actually involves relational networks in your brain. If I add social information about how me and my supervisor were working, that's social information. If I talk about how stressful doing a PhD is, that's emotional information. You see how I can't ever really convey something to you without using one of these higher systems. And the question was, do the higher systems want to inhibit? Do they need to? And what we're starting to understand now after we did a huge amount of tests that got disrupted by COVID and we had to find some clever ways of getting around that is it turns out that potentially on pilot data, cognitive systems seem more capable of handling energy requirements than the sensory systems do. The sensory systems will try to shut things off our early findings show that the cognitive like language doesn't care. You can read visually or you can hear auditory, both things in language. So they don't need a sensory, they don't need one sensory system. They're independent of them. They just take in information for wherever they want. Um, and we think these cognitive systems 
might use energy in a different way. They might ask for regulation. They might think what interference is in a different way. But I don't know. And follow me and watch this space when we do have more information as I come to the end of my PhD. So that's my research career to date um, over the last few years. I'm becoming a psychologist, then becoming a neuroscientist, and then trying to probe into these questions about more complex regions of the brain, which neuroscience doesn't always do. Sometimes neuroscience wants to answer the questions it can answer, but I probed in a more psychological way, asking about these really high-level things that people can do with their brains, which is normal to us every day, but to a science, it's really hard to break apart some of these things. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing that journey. That is fascinating, the work you've been doing over the past few years and just diving into neuroscience and psychology. And I loved what you said at the beginning that psychology really helped you in your day-to-day navigate the world and understand people as a science. Based off of that, I'm interested in perhaps one insight you have for those who don't have an academic you know, background in psychology or neuroscience, but what is one insight that almost anyone can understand to help us think about people as a science and an insight that could help anyone in their day-to-day from what you learned in psychology and neuroscience? Okay, I've got one, definitely. When you are training to be a psychologist, you will come across human behavior in its many facets. However, you understand how psychology works and how people work the way they are, not the way you want them to be. So if you have a look at gambling behaviors, gambling is a very difficult behavior for some people to handle. Logically, or um, you know, any kind of addiction really, addicts then will value their addiction over things that aren't their addiction. Again, I'm not saying anything crazy, but it's about the perspective that you get from this. That means that if you know somebody is an addict, they're likely going to steal from you because they need to fuel their addiction. Yeah, they'll burn through their money because they have an addiction. They'll they'll need more money and they will steal from you. Now, where the psychology comes in, and this can be also in how people's memory works. I'll give another example in a minute that's less loaded than addiction. But if somebody says to you, I'm on the clean and I'm on straight and narrow and they're, you know, can I stay over at your house? And you realize they're probably still um, addicted to whatever they're addicted to. And then later on, you are concerned about your phone going missing. Psychologically, there is a very probable answer there. Now, in society, politely, you don't accuse. Here's where the different perspective comes in. Maybe as a psychologist, you should know how that whole line's going to work. You know how the system works. We know how addiction works. So maybe you should put your phone somewhere safe or just put some valuables in your bedroom and lock it and say that you're a private person. You're taking the system as you want it to be rather than politely pretending that you don't know what is happening. And it's not me. You're just taking that scientific approach that the system works in a certain way. Let's do it a different way with students, right? Revising is boring. Nobody likes revising. I love reading books. I love watching new streams. I love listening to podcasts where I know stuff. But just revising the same information over and over again is boring. Now, when somebody says, I'm going to revise five hours every single day for their exam, because that's, um, and they think that's how much they need to do, and they've never revised that much before, there is a probable situation that's going to happen here. Now, you can try and advise. Maybe you should break it up. Maybe you should find it more fun. Again, you're taking the situation as it is, the system as it is to try and provide help. People will normally get upset. I've tried this before. But then what's going to happen is that this person who's not revised a lot in the past is probably not going to revise a lot in the future either. 
So they don't revise a bunch, and then they realise they didn't do a whole bunch of hours. So they go, okay, well next, well, now I've got to do six hours a day to catch up. And you kind of need to realise at some point, you're banking on you putting in more energy, but the evidence shows you're going to put in less energy. As a psychologist, what you should do is find a new way to revise. Clearly it's not working. And I know you want to believe that you can revise. And I know there's some pride on the line. I know there's some ego on the line. But you have to take the evidence that you're just not making this work. So that's what I kind of learned from. And I think that's true for everybody that realize when you are talking to somebody or when you're trying to do something yourself, what the evidence shows about how you've acted in the past and that people change but change requires effort. So don't try and suddenly change a huge amount. Don't expect other people to change a huge amount, but work with how people are. Common example, and I have no trouble saying this, I actually have three separate um, budgets for my household. Quite a few people I know actually have one budget. Their wage goes into one account. They handle it all from there. I actually have a food budget and I have a budget that is my bills and I have a budget that's my personal money I spend on whatever I want. Because I know from when I first did budgets, I couldn't keep them separate. So rather than get upset and think I have to be able to keep them separate, now I just have them in three, three different budgets. They've got different, like I've got a sketch pad, I've got a notepad, and they're all on three different like columns. And it works really well. Because I accepted what I could and could not do. So that's what psychology taught me for being in the world. That's interesting. And I like, yeah, looking at the situation, accepting it is what it is, but more from a scientific perspective of this is the evidence that's being presented to me. Okay, how can I act knowing that that evidence is what it is? That's, ooh, that's interesting. But viewing it more as a science, because I think people often say, yeah, it is what it is, or or yeah, I can accept I, I am who I am, but take it one step further. That's the evidence in front of you. Great, now how are you gonna experiment off of that evidence, or how are you gonna act off of that evidence? And there's no judgment. Say that I was doing, um, so I did courses on learning psychology, which is a really fundamental part of psychology. Anybody who ever gets a chance to read a learning psychology or behavior psychology textbook, please do it. It will massively change how you view the world. People are amazingly repeatable in some behaviors. When you then do an example of looking at somebody is having trouble with finance, they spend all their money and they regularly end up in debt. That person is no less of a person. There's no judgment. You're not a worse human being because you spend your money or because you can't manage a budget. You are simply a subject or a participant that shows a different behavior in finance to the one next to you in a hypothetical situation. We don't sit in a class or in a lab and go, bad person, good person. So when you're trying to, when I try and talk about this, so I'm not saying that, you know, if you can't see patterns of behavior or if you struggle to change your behavior, that's fine. I'm not judging you. I'm not saying that you're bad or worse, but we just need to try and understand. So on occasion, science can provide a really detached way of looking at things where there is no judgment. The only time science really ever gets a narc on, to use a very British term, is if we present something that has very clear data and nobody listens. So for example, the back of your head has your visual system in it. It just does. You stimulate somebody with something visual, the back of their head shows activity. You get damage to the back of their head, you go blind. If somebody was then to go, I don't think the back of the head has your visual system in it, you're just wrong. I mean, sure, you can come and, like, okay, you're not entirely wrong. If you can come and present to me more than 120 years of data that absolutely shows that the back of the head does not have the visual system, you're right. Fantastic. But normally, people don't turn up with that, and therefore you are wrong. But that's a very rare situation in which a science is going to just flat out tell you you're wrong. The rest of the time, 
you're just dealing with people. And as a psychologist, you are taught to try and have compassion. You know, if somebody's talking to you about the fact that they can't handle their finances, that's stressful. You don't want to berate that person. You don't want to say, oh my God, you're so terrible. You can't handle your finances. It's more just, do you want to talk about it? Are you okay? What's happening? Like, do you have a regular issue? Like maybe some people um, have collections that kind of get out of hand not like a out and out addiction where they know it's damaging but some people keep collecting and buying things to the point they're not even enjoying getting them and that's actually the sign of an addiction but that's not a you know sitting around in um, the dark alleyway homeless injecting yourself with heroin it's a very calm middle class version of you know addiction but you see that they're the same thing and when a psychologist says you're addicted we're just using the scientific term but with no judgment and no collection that you're a bad person and that helped to be able to remove all these moral and ethical judgments and just say, I'm just going to talk to you as a person and understand what you're saying. That's great. Yeah, it takes somewhat of the emotional aspect of it and the, yeah, the, the judgment out of it, like you were saying. Uh, I find this so fascinating. I, I could truly talk about this all day with you, um, but I do know you have your own podcast where you talk about a lot of these topics, which leads me to my next topic, uh, which is how did you become the owner of your own podcast company and a host of your own podcast, especially with all of your you know academic career going on and your studies? Um, we'd just love to hear more about how what led you to hosting your own podcast and becoming the owner of your podcast company. Okay, so this is going to require a bit of background about how PhDs work. Sometimes when you do a PhD, things get delayed. And when you're doing a three-year PhD, that's an enormously stressful situation. And it happens about every week. So you live in a state of constant stress. It's just the way it is. So say that you are running an experiment and you come across a coding problem. Now, I have no formal training as a coder. I've done three, um, four years of coding, but I never did an undergraduate course. I never went to a coding school. So there'll be things that I just didn't know how to do. And then you would um, apply, you'd like um, write an email to some people who you know had done a similar experiment to you in the past. Everybody is normally very helpful and they'd get back to you with some help. They normally get back to you in two to three weeks. Scientists are not fast at replying. We're all very busy and sometimes you just miss emails or sometimes you just can't reply because you just have to get stuff done. What you then end up doing is you've got a period of waiting, haven't you? So logically then you run your next experiment and you design something new. Then you get delayed again, and this goes around in circles. So you end up, um, normally, this is why most scientists run five to six experiments at one time and end up in a massive pile of stress, because logically, at one point, by confluence of probability, you'll suddenly be able to work on all those experiments at the same time, and your brain will explode. Luckily, I was protected from doing something that stupid. Um, I did some stupid stuff, but not that stupid. And I realized that at certain points of waiting, I just couldn't do anything. And I didn't want to add another experiment because I realized I was going to drive myself mental. I have the stress levels that you undergo as a PhD can actually make you sick. So when I say mental, I'm not being flippant. They can lead to the states of mental illness, be serious for a second, are very high for PhD students. So I didn't want to put myself in a situation where I was giving myself um, a serious disorder or making my life so stressful I couldn't bear it. But one thing that I actually have been doing for the last seven years is talking about science. And talking about how to break stuff down about science. Because like I've said, there is no simple version of neuroscience. There's no version of neuroscience where I can explain to you everything I do really in 10-15 minutes. Now I've given the whistle-stop tour on this show, but I wanted to be quite clear that you don't really have the full view of what my research is. And that's not your fault. That's that I don't have on this show an hour to do that. And that's not what you're here for. You're here for the whistle-stop tour. And I hope to interest you enough 
to come and have a look at the other stuff I do later, which is the interesting way to do it. But when I was doing other shows, they would never let me do past even 30 minutes at some points. And I did all these talks in person and I was getting cut down and I was being asked to explain stuff that was really complicated, but I wasn't allowed to give the background. And people were getting confused because I was presenting information and you'll see it on the news. You'll see that they'll say things like, you know, running two times a day will stop Alzheimer's. And you're like, but I know somebody who ran two times a day and they got Alzheimer's. What? And you're like, okay, no, in reality, people who did 30 minutes or more twice a week of high-level cardio showed a statistical reduction in the chance of getting Alzheimer's without genetics. You know, that's like, when you get the paper, that's the real statement. So you have the simpler, quick version, but it confuses everybody because people aren't stupid. And when you present them half the information, they get half the conclusion. So I made a show where I could explain all of it. And a show where we talk about the methodology. When scientists get together, when we do go to, when you do go to a science conference, somebody will have a discussion like they'll say, I did this study and we saw that giving people um, anti-depression medication, which affects the serotonin levels, didn't change the serotonin levels. Now that's a big discussion at the moment. There are other mental health professionals who are more adept to speak about this than me. Now, you would think that what we then all do is argue about the nature of are the pills working and are they doing their job and should we be giving people these pills? That's actually not really what we talk about. That's maybe like 20% of the talk. The real 80% of the talk is, well, how did you give people the pills? Over what period? Were they always taking them? Was there other factors? Were there other things in their life that were stressing them out? Maybe they had genetic factors that make the pills work or not. All of these methods, all of these scientific experimentation details, that's what we talk about. And really, once we get to that very heated discussion usually, by the end of that, if we can decide that we actually believe that the person did it correctly, you know, all of their experimental design was correct, then I guess the um, results must be taken as a given because you did it properly. And if you did it properly, that's fine. Now, if somebody then comes along next day with some counter evidence, then we discuss again. But what scientists really talk about is how we did stuff, not what we did. And that's what my show focuses on. I explain the how because the how is what the scientists are talking about. So... We had an episode um, where we talked about with Gary Donahue, and we didn't really start breaking down X, Y, and Z on mental health disorders. He gave a very um, compassionate discussion about what psychosis and schizophrenia did is, but what he spoke, spent a lot of time talking about was actually how do you even study schizophrenia and psychosis? What are we doing to understand the disorders? What are we doing to actually probe why one person has delusions and another person has hallucinations? Um, he talked about the methods of which he will treat somebody because he's a practicing clinician and not, you know, we have these numbers and these num there's like a thousand people out, so many out of a thousand people have psychosis, so many out of a thousand people develop psychosis and have full schizophrenia, which is a large disorder. Um, psychosis is a symptom of schizophrenia. He talked about the person and their role in life, their person and their social situation, the person and what they needed to feel safe, why they had these delusions and why they needed them to cope in the world. That's the discussions about how we treat somebody, not treating them as numbers, not treating them as a what, and not treating them as a disease. That's how clinical work is done on a how basis rather than a what basis. So my show went into that, and we've talked about non-human psychology. Um, obviously, there are many animals and different species of animals. They think, they react to the world, they can solve problems, they have minds. So we talked about that. We've spoken about how children see the world. Children actually are in some places very inventive, in others they're really not very inventive and actually are not as creative as they look. That was one of the first episodes I ever did. 
I've spoken about um, psychopathy and how we understand psychopathy. It turns out one of the best ways to understand a psychopath is by looking at how the water flows around their brain. And that sounds crazy because you'd never see it on a movie. You'd never see, you know, this guy killed 27 women with a butcher's knife. It's kind of weird that actually the water flows around his brain in a different way. That would never be a discussion in a movie. I'd love to see that movie, but it would never be a discussion. But actually understanding how this works, how the connections and how the architecture of their brain sets up is really important for understanding psychopathy. And Dr. Stefan de Brito taught me about that. But we need you to understand the how so you can be part of that conversation with us. So we teach you the how. I love how your podcast really dives into the the how because the what is the the headline that you see in the newspaper, like you were saying, or the one line or conclusion. But what about the years of research and experimentation that got to that what, that how is the most important piece? Yeah, it's really important. I actually did a poster in Bath in um, the UK where I showed the exact same experiment, but one was done with an EEG cap and one was done with an fMRI cap, uh, fMRI machine. They show totally different results. Same experiment. And the difference is the methods we used show something different. And it's because of how we studied the same question. And I'm not saying like we did roughly the same experiment. It was literally the same piece of code. And they show different results. So you can't look at something on the news and say, oh, well, you know, they did this and that's all the answers. No, how they did it is massively important because I can actually present you either complete success or complete failure just by changing the machine I used. And also that means from you, the listener, that means information is being kept from you. And it's not information that we're trying to keep from you. It just means information is being kept from you. What I want to try and do is at least provide you the opportunity to see how we do things so you can make the choice if you want to learn about it. And then you might be more informed when you do see these to understand that if somebody says, we have a new cap that understands your brainwaves and lets you see how you sleep. Well, what if I actually had a discussion about what we understand right now about sleep so you can see the state of the field, what we do understand, and therefore if that advert really pairs up because... If the world's best sleep psychologists and neuroscientists that we've had a chat with don't know something that that advert's saying they know about, the likely chance is the advert's just confused. I'm not saying they're lying. I'm just saying they're confused because neuroscience is hard. We're just trying to give you a chance to understand how we do stuff so you can understand for yourself what's going on rather than drink two glasses of wine and you won't get dementia. I mean, that's a ridiculous statement. I mean, there is not, it could be true, but there's so much about the mechanics of what is the alcohol doing and what parts of the alcohol are actually getting into your brain and what are they then doing in your brain. That's crazy. That's like saying cars will change how the economy works. Well, yes, you're not wrong, but do you mind expanding? Like it's the same level of preposterousness in those two statements. It's actually almost perfectly equivocal. Yeah, I think that's a a perfect reason to have a podcast is to dive into that how and also you're giving you know your fellow scientists a platform to speak to the how and dive into that as you were saying you know before you weren't given the chance to dive into the how you were given 30 minutes to explain the what and then that was it um so i think that's an an awesome goal to have for that podcast do you have any long-term goals for the podcast or is it right now just a platform to have scientists share their their stories, their experiments, their journeys? Um, or are you hoping to take it somewhere else? So at the moment, I will be tentative about some of this. The first thing, um, so I've got some serious ones I want to do and I've got some more fun ones I want to do. Um, we are looking to expand. We are looking to expand a lot. We just know that there are many people out in the world because of how marketing works. They just don't know our show exists. They haven't had the choice to listen or not. So we want to grow and 
we're not saying that we want to have everybody listen. We want to give you the choice if you want to listen. Download an episode, see if you like it. That's all fine. The second thing is that we want to expand into some more shows looking at quicker topics. So, you know, I break down one paper that might be interesting, but people won't have had seven years in neuroscience to be able to read it. And, you know, just disseminating that privilege that I know I have a privilege that I understand how the brain works. So you see, there's a really interesting paper talking about the nature of consciousness and how consciousness can actually be computed mathematically. That is not something that you're going to be able to casually read on the bus. But maybe I can do a show about it, making it a little bit more understandable. And I also want to have a look at talking about some parts of my education. Um, When I did neuroscience, I came to realize lots of people hadn't got a neuroscience background. So psychology background. So we had physicists and engineers and doctors and statisticians and mathematicians, and they hadn't learned all of the stuff about the brain that I learned over my undergrad. So there'd be conversations I'd have where they just wouldn't know stuff. And this was fundamental first year undergrad knowledge for a psychologist. So I think it'll be interesting to start making more shows. We've started this with a series called A Brain Talking About Brains, where I just break down some of the stuff that's obvious to me, because I was taught it, but can be put into a show. We also would like to, we are curious about looking to expand into other topics and working with some people I know, but that's very early stages. So I don't want to go too much into that, but we're interested once we grow this show to see if um, the model can work in others. And I'm also um, on a more fun side, curious to look at talking about some of the fictional psychology um, that's out there. So not myths. Um, obviously, at the beginning of every one of my episodes is a myth about the brain that we debunk. But looking at depictions in movies and TVs and games about different forms of psychology. So to give an example, in 2017, there was a game called Prey. In the game called Prey, there is an alien species called the Typhon. They are very different to humans, but in a way that is really hard for a non-psychologist to probe. So let me provide some examples. First off, they feed on consciousness. That's actually a theory called panpsychicism. It's been around for 100 years and it's really inaccessible to non-academics. But it is an interesting concept to pin down that consciousness might actually not be a magical property of your brain. It might actually be a fundamental property of reality. It sounds crazy and it requires a lot of breaking down, but there is some arguments about why consciousness might be more fundamental to the universe than just in our heads. Another interesting thing is Typhon don't communicate. They don't have language, but they have actions and they move in a certain way. So doing a show talking about how do you have not a hive mind where there's one queen, which we've all seen in movies and then lots of scuttling things controlled by telepathy, but effectively wind up drones that just wander. The, the psychology of how that works and the psychology of what is the thinking thing behind this or even is there a thinking thing behind this would be something that I would like to do more casually and be able to do some episodes on that. Um, there's obviously been great shows looking at like the biology of monsters and stuff like that, but not as many on the psychology. What does a zo- What would a zombie or an infected person in a zombie movie feel if they were still conscious? There is evidence about how, you know, the psychology of it. Um, how would... The e- how would your ego handle things like um, in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, a total perspective vortex is where you see your place in the universe and how tiny you are. Without any of the ego protections you normally have, that's called a total perspective vortex and apparently it's very dangerous and there's a... Read it, it's just brilliant. There's a fantastically humorous scene in which um, Zaphod Beetlebrox survives one through unbelievable narcissism. But the psychology of these things is quite fascinating and I love art. So I thought making a more casual show talking about some of these would be quite interesting and my theories on how it would work. Because nicely, I don't think the writers actually thought about it. I think they made something cool and put it in a movie or a game and just went, sure. But 
The best thing you can then do is take somebody's work that they thought about maybe for a couple of days and then just twist and talk about it and speculate and ruin it and then go, well, I'm done and I'm just going to leave you thinking about that. So, yeah, I guess I'm I guess I'm the monster in this situation. So that's our f- future. Perfect. And for anyone listening, it's Water Cooler Neuroscience, correct? And where can uh, folks listen to your podcast? Sure. It is Water Cooler Neuroscience, like the thing you've got in the office and neuroscience. And we are on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher, as well as 44 other podcasting apps. So type us in, you'll probably find us. We're also, we've got our own website, which is watercooler.co.uk, because we're in Britain. That has our episodes. It also has information about the guests. It also has information about us and the show. And we also have a membership system where you can get exclusive content you can't get anywhere else. So we've got extra myths. We've got extra small stories. Also, you can keep a touch on our daily posts on Facebook, Instagram, Reddit, and Twitter. We talk about things we like, you know, articles that were kind of cool, something that we read. Sometimes um, some of the guests get back in touch with us and want to share something that they've recently done. We get that out to you. That's all available. Awesome. Yeah. I hope everyone checks out Water Cooler Neuroscience. Sounds like a fantastic podcast. I know it's a fantastic podcast. So Wilf, I do have one last question for you uh, before we get into that. I think your expertise is absolutely fantastic. If you're, you know, interested, if our audience is interested, would love to eventually have you back on the podcast. Perhaps we could dive into from a psych psychology and neuroscience perspective, what are best practices for balancing work and life or dive into a particular topic to also give you that time to dive into that and explain the how as well. Cause I, I find your expertise is so fascinating and can be so so helpful and I know you have a a ton more to say which is fantastic I am quite happy to do that I just want to make clear that I've made quite clear what my topics are you know what I do for research day to day so I can explain what my general psychology training would explain but please don't feel that I'm going to be saying I've run an experiment where we looked at work-life balance and this is our new paper Um, I don't want anybody to be disappointed I don't want anybody to misunderstand but There is a lot about how work-life balance works, about the limits of what people can do. And you know what I was saying earlier about, you know, understanding systems the way they are? That there is more stuff of kind of that standard wisdom of psychology that can be provided that we can talk about that is just fascinating without me having, you know, some brand new paper I published in a journal. So we can definitely talk about the more general stuff behind how to function, how to work. And lots of it's actually quite common sense. We've done shows before where I've said, like, you don't on occasion, and I'll give this as a hint if you want to have me back, don't worry so much about some of these quick fixes or these pay £2,000 for my week course. I promise I can tell you some ways to be healthier and better and happier that you can do now. And I don't mean, you know, these 10 psychological tricks. You already know them. I'm just going to highlight to you why they're important. The difficult part for you will be finding a way to get out of that rhythm of behavior that we spoke about earlier, accepting it. But we'll have a chat about that if you want to have me back. Yeah, I think that'd be great to to just dive into one of those topics and hear your perspective on it and, and what you've learned through your academics as well. I think that'd be great. Awesome. Um, my last question here for you today for today's episode is what is your proudest accomplishment? Now, I know this can be a, a difficult question and it can be you know, related to your career, your life, your podcast, anything. It can also be from 10 years ago or just from yesterday. So really in this moment, what would you say your proudest accomplishment is? I think the proudest 
achievement I've ever had was when I got my first full experiment signed off as a scientist. At the University of Matt, you don't just write it, send it to your supervisor and he agrees. I had to go in front of the entire board of my imaging unit, in front of professors, academics, honorary professors, and defend my idea. And they could have turned me down, they could have said no, but there was scientific merit to my idea. We went over the methods, we created it, and at that point, I'm a scientist. I don't know what more you want to do not be a, what you want to be a scientist or not. I made an experiment. It was accepted by my peers. We are working on it. We've run it. So yeah, at that point in my mind, I became a neuroscientist. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today, Wolf. I'm really looking forward to having you back on the podcast to dive into a, a particular topic. But this has been great getting to know you and your work and your career. And congratulations on all the successes you've had so far. And I'm looking forward for more things to come from you. Quick last little question. I know you mentioned where people can find your podcast, Water Cooler Neuroscience. Where can people find you personally? You really can't much, to be honest. As a scientist, we don't like, to, I tend not to be that public, but I promise if you get in touch with us on social media, on the site, it will get to me in minutes. I, you know, we've got um, our marketing manager, we've got our web uh, manager handling stuff, but they've got me on my phone. If you post something and want to have a chat about an episode, I've chatted with people about stuff we've talked about, you'll get to me immediately. So get in touch and we can have a chat and go from there my contact information is actually at the bottom of the website so go on our website scroll to the bottom you'll see our email address get in touch and we can have a talk even if it's things like you know you're thinking about becoming a neuroscientist or you're thinking about becoming a psychologist or you're having a hard time and i might not be able to answer your questions but i will definitely work to try and find somebody who can answer them somebody who is psychologically the correct person for you because i don't want to come across conceited that as a psychologist I can solve all problems but I'm here to help and listen if people want to talk and they hear my voice and want to get in touch. Perfect well thank you so much for your time today Wolf I really appreciate it it was lovely chatting with you today. Yeah it was thank you. Thank you.